It's Wednesday the 7th of February, 1968. A cold winter's evening. 20-year-old Claire Josephs makes her way home to Deep Dean Court in Bromley. It's not even six o'clock, but it's dark already and people in the street pull their coats, collars tighter, their breath appearing in clouds as they rush to get home. Claire walks down Kingswood Road, past the spacious 1930s bow-fronted houses and turns towards her apartment block, which sits on the brow of a hill behind skeletal horse chestnut trees. As she approaches her flat, she takes the keys from her handbag and looks up at the windows of her new home that she shares with her husband of four months, Bernard. She feels a glow of pride, a 6,000 pounds first floor apartment in such a lovely area and with a balcony, just like Romeo and Juliet. At only five foot three, Claire is petite with shiny mid-parted black hair and blue eyes. Underneath her coat, she wears a striking cerise-colored woolen mini-dress, which affords some warmth, but she shivers as she enters the dark, cold flat, and she decides to keep her coat on until the heating kicks in. If it does, it's been playing up. Claire looks forward to the summertime, when she will open the door out onto the little balcony, maybe even grow some flowers in pots. Bernard, her childhood sweetheart, is going to be late tonight. He's out having a few after-work drinks at the Crooked Billet public house with his friend John Delaney. It's a stag do of sorts to celebrate John's last few days of freedom as a single man before he gets married in Wales on Saturday. Claire is looking forward to the weekend. Bernard is going ahead to the venue with John in the morning and she will follow him down on Friday morning. They both have full-time jobs. Claire as a secretary and 21-year-old Bernard as a cashier. The 60s are in full swing, but women are still expected to take care of the home and she's finding her feet as a housewife. She changes her outdoor shoes for slippers and moves into the kitchen to make dinner. This will be the couple's last meal together before they meet up in Wales, so she decides to make something special, a lemon souffle. Claire takes a food mixer from the cupboard, one of many wedding presents she and Bernard received from one of the 200 guests who attended their special day. In fact, many of the kitchen implements are wedding gifts. She lays out her recipe book, takes eggs and caster sugar and places them on the worktop by the mixer, careful not to get any of the ingredients on her dress. She chops up the lemons using one of her knives from the block, another wedding present, and squeezes the juice into a cup. A zesty fragrance fills the kitchen. As she cracks the eggs into the mixing bowl, the phone rings loudly in the quiet flat. Claire wipes her hands on a tea towel and goes to answer it. It is Bernard's mother. They chat for about ten minutes, and Claire asks advice about the lemon souffle. It will be the last telephone call of Claire's life. Not long after, Claire is interrupted again, this time by a knock at the door. It can't be Bernard. He said he would be late home, and besides, he has a key. Curious as to who it is, and still wearing her coat, Claire heads to the door to find an unexpected guest. She's surprised to see her visitor without his wife. In fact, although she's heard lots about him, Claire's only met him once. But she invites him in and, as any proud housewife would do, offers him coffee 
and opens a packet of biscuits, putting half a dozen out on a plate. The pair make small talk, but Claire begins to feel uneasy. Why is he here alone? Why has he shown up unexpectedly? As the conversation dries up, her unease turns to dread. This is no social call. It's something else altogether. Her heart begins to throb in her chest as he turns on her. His polite, formal mask drops and he snatches one of the knives from the block and Claire finally sees him for the monster he really is. Fear grips her as she realises that she can't protect herself against him. She turns to run, tries to get to the balcony or a window to call for help, but it's too late. Claire Josephs bleeds out on her bedroom floor, slaughtered by her own kitchen knife. It's a shocking crime, the murder of a young bride, and it will be described by Detective Superintendent John Cummings of Scotland Yard as one of the classic cases of forensic science crime detection. It will make history as the first crime that will be solved using forensic evidence alone. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers, as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At eight o'clock that evening, John Delaney drops Bernard off at Deep Dean Court. He waves goodbye as his friend drives off and then looks up to the flat and sees the lights are off and the curtains are drawn to a gap. He feels a twinge of worry. Claire should be home by now. Maybe the heating wasn't working again, and she went to a friend's house to keep warm. 
He lets himself in, shouts, hello, but he's greeted only by silence. His worry blooms. Surely she would have left a note if she'd gone out. Where is Claire? In the kitchen, Bernard sees the electric mixer, whole eggs, butter, and egg whites near the bowl. A recipe book lies open next to it. He can smell coffee, something that Claire rarely drinks, and finds a cup and saucer by the sink containing brown dregs. Has someone else been here? He goes to the bathroom and finds it empty. He then makes his way into the lounge, where there is no sign of Claire, only one of her slippers lying on the floor. With a sense of dread, he moves towards the bedroom. The metallic scent in the air tells him something is very wrong. Bernard flicks the lights on and sees a sight that will haunt him for the rest of his life. His wife lying face down on the floor, unresponsive. At first, he can't make sense of what he's seeing. Why is she lying there? Has she fainted? But looking closer, he sees blood coming from underneath Claire's body. Distraught and confused, he panics and rushes to the phone, calling his parents. In a garbled message, he tells them that there's something wrong with Claire. They reassure him that they will be there as soon as possible. Next, he calls the Parvins, Claire's mother and father. How can he tell them what has happened to their daughter? The words don't come out right. He puts the phone down, stunned. Then he has to wait with his wife, not knowing if she is dead or alive, until help arrives. Sometime later, Bernard has no idea how long, the Parvins arrive. It's a sight no parent should ever have to see. Their beautiful young daughter, lifeless, blood seeping into the bedroom carpet from beneath her body. Claire's mother becomes hysterical. Claire's father, Roland, realizes she's dead and dials 999 to summon the ambulance and the police. Bernard's parents arrive soon after and, having taken in the horror of the scene, they try to comfort their son, but to no avail. The ambulance arrives. Arthur Ernest Ingold takes in the scene. He's never been to a call-out when the patient is already dead. He notes that Claire's pale blue raincoat has been pulled down a little from her shoulders, revealing the fact that the zip on the back of her dress had been undone six to eight inches. What could that mean? It is only when the ambulance man turns Claire's body over to check her vital signs that the cause of death becomes apparent. Arthur is horrified to see that her throat has been cut, severed almost to the spine. He reels back. He's never seen anything like this in his 12 years with the ambulance service. On closer inspection, he notices more cuts, defense wounds on Claire's hand and arms that have sliced through her flesh, and four stab wounds. This is murder. At 9.15pm, Detective Superintendent John Cummings arrives at the flat to head the investigation. When he sees Claire's body, he is struck by how small she looks. One slipper lies near her feet. Her dark hair is matted with blood. He makes a note of her injuries 
and the extensive bloodstains on the left side of her chest, throat and face, as well as the defensive wounds on her arms. It's hard at times like this for anyone not to be overwhelmed, either by distress at the sight of a life so cruelly taken, or anger at the fact that someone had come into Claire's home and brutally murdered her. Regardless of feelings, D.S. Cummings remains expressionless. He has a job to do. After seeing the body, he has a cursory look around the crime scene. He notes the coffee cup by the sink, the ingredients for the souffle on the worktop, and a plate with six biscuits taken from the broken packet. In the hallway, next to a clothes area, he finds a blood-stained handkerchief. It's the first crucial piece of evidence. Cummings gently asks Claire's distraught husband if anything has been stolen. Bernard finds it hard to think straight, but one item is obviously missing from the flat, a serrated carving knife. Cummings suspects this knife is the murder weapon and begins to construct his case. There is means, an opportunity, but what about the motivation? The means, a nine-inch scalloped-edged carving knife, a wedding gift cruelly turned on the bride, the opportunity, an unexpected visitor dropping in for a cup of coffee before Claire's new husband returns home from the pub. But what was the motivation? There's no sign of a struggle, nothing was stolen, no indication of a break-in, money in the flat has been left untouched, and there are no signs of sexual assault. A Bromley police spokesman tells the Daily Mirror, this is a baffling case. It appears to be quite senseless and without motive. This is a nasty murder without rhyme or reason. And where is the knife? Without it, D.S. Cummings knows he's gonna have a fight on his hands to find the killer. If they have a weapon, then the police can take fingerprints and be certain that they have the perpetrator. But with no weapon, how are they going to link any potential suspects to the crime? Without a motive, police are struggling to find a suspect. There is suspicion about Claire's young husband, Bernard, as there often is when a wife is murdered. But D.S. Cummings suspects that there's more to it. He makes a televised statement about the murder and warns that the killer might strike again. The Sunday Mirror states, Detectives are investigating the theory that Mrs. Josephs, an attractive 20-year-old brunette, was followed home by a man broken-hearted over her marriage. The man may have stabbed her in a fit of jealousy with her own bread knife, the only thing missing from her flat in Kingswood Road, Bromley, Kent. Another theory the police are investigating is that the killer followed up newspaper announcements of weddings. They suspect he might have turned to murder after plaguing local brides with telephone calls or even doorstep visits. The police appeal to other newlyweds in the area for information on mystery callers. Many newly married couples are feeling vulnerable. Husbands are reluctant to leave their wives home alone, fearing there may be a sadistic killer on the loose targeting young brides. A neighbor of the Josephs comes to be regarded as a vital witness and her name is kept secret to protect her. Police reconstruct the movements of a man who she says she saw on the balcony of the Joseph's flat 
apparently trying to make his escape. One detective goes onto the balcony, while D.S. Cummings stands below with the witness. Cummings uses a personal radio to direct his officer into various positions to help the woman to recall the incident. The witness says she saw a man trying to get out of the flat without using the door about 7.25 p.m. The pathologist put the time of Claire's death at between 7.15 and 7.30 p.m. Could this have been Claire's killer trying to make his escape? There are also reports of a white sports car parked opposite Deep Dean Court between 4.45 and 6 p.m. One neighbor said she heard a car drive off at considerable speed about 7.20 p.m. And another witness said this car was in a near collision with a learner driver who had to swerve to miss it. But even after a roadblock checkpoint and a newspaper appeal for anyone in the area at the time of the murder, the white car is not found. Squads of detectives are sent to interview nearly 2,000 people in the neighborhood surrounding the apartment block. But it's the knife that D.S. Cummings is desperate to find. Residents nearby are asked to look in their gardens for a long knife with a serrated blade. A search of drains and gardens in the area is carried out, with sniffer dogs deployed. Officers wade along shallow streams and, according to the Daily Telegraph, the River Ravensbourne is dragged. But there's still no sign of the blade. The Belfast Telegraph reports that police are using a mine detector in the search for the carving knife. The Kent Messenger newspaper carries a photo of soldiers from the Royal Engineers Maidstone using mine detectors to search fields and scrubland adjoining the A20 road between the village of Leeds and Harrietsham. Police said the search was for a metal object, but declined to make further comment. Behind the scenes, police have started interviewing the 200 guests who came to the Joseph's lavish wedding the previous October. They are convinced that Claire knew her attacker. Why else would she have invited him into her home and made him a cup of coffee? But they're struggling to find leads. After a thorough search of the flat, they only have a few pieces of evidence. A cup and saucer, fibers on Claire's dress, a handkerchief with a few spots of blood on it, and even dog hairs. The Josephs didn't own a dog. Still convinced that she knew her killer, the police turned their attention to a stack of Christmas cards that Claire had saved as a memento of her and Bernard's first married Christmas. The aim is to check the friends and acquaintances of the young couple to see if any leads present themselves. It's not long before the exercise bears fruit. A name on one of the cards matches a man known to the police. Roger Payne. Roger's wife, Mary, is a friend of Claire's. The previous December, Claire sent a card to Mary telling her of her honeymoon in Ibiza and the new flat. In that card, she gave her new address. Mary replied, saying she hoped to visit Claire in the new year. Had Claire inadvertently given her address to her killer? Suspicion quickly falls upon Roger Payne. Claire and Mary became friends when working as sales assistants in a dress shop in Beckenham in 1965. 
It was when Mary left the shop and went to work in a travel agency that she met Payne. By all accounts, a tall, well-mannered and good-looking man, and they were soon married. But Claire had never met Payne until she wrote a Christmas card inviting Mary to visit. One Sunday evening, Payne dropped Mary off at Claire's and went to visit his mother, Irene. The two women caught up whilst Bernard sat watching television. Not long after 9.30pm, Payne returned to pick Mary up, bringing with him the couple's long-haired Dachshund, Parker. Claire offered him a Coca-Cola, which he accepted. Mary took his coat and folded it over one of the kitchen chairs. They left some 20 minutes later. A perfectly normal evening, save for the fact that it was the last time Mary saw her friend alive. To look at him, it's hard to suspect Roger Payne of such a brutal and senseless murder. He's well-spoken and very highly educated, so much so that people often refer to him as a gent. He even takes good care of his mother, often visiting her and taking her out for day trips. But Payne's background is dark and complex. The only child of John Jack Payne an outwardly respectable accountant, and his wife, Irene, Payne's start in life was not an easy one. Payne himself says, Even my earliest recollections are of a tyrannical father physically abusing both my mother and myself. His tyranny extended to all areas of human activity, but especially the domestic. The young boy was not allowed to open any cupboard, nor enter any room, including the toilet, without first seeking parental permission. Irene found this treatment of her son unbearable, and when he was eight years old, Irene took Payne to live with her parents. When his grandfather died, Payne's mother and grandmother sent him to King Edward's school in Whitley, Surrey, on a free place due to his family circumstances. It was here he acquired the polish evident in his manners and speech but his gentlemanly exterior proved to be deceiving. One night in 1959, he went to the house of a school friend where he knew the parents were away and a young woman called Phyllis was staying overnight. Payne considered Phyllis to have regarded him with sexual disdain. Armed with a knife and an unloaded air gun, he made his way into the house through an open window, leaving his shoes at the bottom of the stairs. He crept to where Phyllis was sleeping and watched her for about an hour. He then got into bed with her. In a statement given at Wallington Police Station the 7th of July 1959, Payne says, I was thinking, I can't do it. I can't do it. I got this piece of rag which I had, put it over her mouth as I thought she was going to cry out and wake everybody up. I took the knife out of my pocket and threatened her, I suppose, in a sort of way. I had gone with the idea of petting kind of thing. I did say to her that I might have raped her, but I hadn't got it in me. When the friend Phyllis was staying with woke up and told Roger to go home, he told her he was terribly, terribly sorry. But Phyllis reported it to the police the next day, and Payne spent a week on remand at Wormwood Scrubs. Payne pleaded guilty to entering a dwelling at night with intent to commit a felony 
and was put on probation for three years. It is significant the charge contains no mention of sexual intent. In fact, the charge and probationary sentence make it clear that it was a fairly minor offence in the eyes of the court. But this is not the only time that Payne was convicted of illegally entering a woman's bedroom at night. In 1965, intoxicated after a painful breakup, Payne used a key he still had to let himself into his previous workplace at a gas company. The owner and his wife lived in the flat above, but the husband was working away. At 2.30 in the morning, Payne entered the darkened bedroom and the woman cried out in alarm. Later, claiming that he didn't know it was the bedroom, nor that the husband was away, Payne said, I ran forward to place my hand over her mouth, and by such means, in the ensuing struggle, she sustained injuries to her face and arms. He claims that when she recognised him, she told him to wait outside the flat whilst she dressed, but locked him out and called the police. On the 15th of April 1965, Payne was charged with assault occasioning actual bodily harm. He served two months of a three-month sentence. Interestingly, again, the sexual element of this crime was overlooked. Payne appeared to believe his own motivation, that he just wanted to talk to someone. Then, shortly after his wedding in 1966, Payne was questioned about the murder of a sex worker, but an alibi was provided to police by his new bride. Mary's diary was able to show that on the night in question, the couple had fulfilled a social engagement together. A pattern emerges for D.S. Cummings and the team at Scotland Yard. Payne preys on women when he knows that any protective male figure will be out of the house. Had he known that Bernard would be out on the night of Claire Joseph's murder? And if so, why did he target her? It's time, they decide, to speak to the man himself. It's Monday the 12th of February, five days after the murder of Claire Joseph's. Three police officers arrive at the trustee savings bank Maidstone, where Payne works, to question him. Payne must feel embarrassed and angry about being approached so publicly. Immediately, officers notice scratches on his hands, a bruise on his head. Could they have been caused during the attack on Claire? They know from her defence wounds that she tried to fight her attacker off. When asked, did you know Claire Josephs? Payne replies, Claire is a friend of my wife's. But he goes on to say that he's only met her once, about two months ago, when he picked Mary up from Claire's flat. Begrudgingly, he agrees to accompany them to Maidstone Police Station to have his fingerprints taken. Once there, he is asked to account for his whereabouts on Wednesday the 7th of February, the day Claire died. He gives a convoluted list of his activities that day. He describes taking a suit to the dry cleaners before work, picking his suit up again, and then going into London for a medical examination and an interview at the head office of the London Trustee Savings Bank in order to obtain a permanent position. He claims he then went to visit a couple called Mr and Mrs Golding in Surrey to pick up a telephone amplifier. After leaving around 6pm, he found a fish and chip shop nearby, 
bought some chips which he ate in the car, and then started the drive to his mother's. During the journey, he claims his car cut out. Payne says that he lifted the bonnet and attempted to fix the problem, at which point the bonnet fell on his head and knocked his face down onto the battery terminal, explaining the visible bruise. He arrived at his mother's house around 7pm and stayed briefly before heading home for the evening. But he claims, on his way back, his car cut out again, and he didn't get back until nearly 9pm. The officers let him talk, hoping he will give something away. Because of the blood from his head, Payne tells them, the following day I took my suit to Marlowe's cleaners and had my suit cleaned at a reduced cost. The officers then ask him about the scratches on his hands. Payne explains, These came about as a direct result of a domestic argument with my wife, Mary. I think it was because I had picked up a cat. Mary thought I had picked it up rather roughly, so she tried to snatch it away. I then pushed her, and she scratched me or bit me on the hands. The officers have heard enough. They confiscate his tie, the contents of his pockets, and his car keys. Then, with Mary present, police complete a search of the house, removing the suit Payne wore on Wednesday the 7th of February and taking the couple's car. Payne is allowed home later in the evening, with instructions to go to Bromley Police Station the next day to give a sample of blood. No mention was made of fingerprints, the ostensible reason he had been brought to the police station. In an attempt to corroborate his alibi, police visit Payne's mother, Irene, and ask her when she had last seen her son. She gives a brief, confused and vague statement, claiming that she saw him last on Monday the 5th of February, but then immediately changes her mind. She says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. He did call in during the week. I cannot recall the day, but I think it was Wednesday night sometime between 6 and 7. He did not stay for more than a few minutes. But the next day, Irene makes another statement in which she claims Payne called at her home between 6.30 and 6.45 and he left between 7.30 and 7.50 p.m. She claims she didn't see any cuts or bruises on his hands or face and when asked, she says Payne hadn't mentioned trouble with the car. The officers know that Irene idolizes her son. With her parents dead, no husband and no other children, Payne is the center of her world and she does all she can to make him happy. Would this extend to providing him with a false alibi when faced with a murder charge? The next day at Bromley Police Station, Dr. Rachel Hood takes blood samples from Payne and inspects the cut on his head and those on his hands. D.S. Cumming asks for the overcoat Payne is wearing and even though it is the only overcoat he owns, Roger has to hand it over. Cummings then asks Payne again, did you murder Claire Josephs? To which Payne replies, no. He's allowed to return home, but police keep a close eye on him, taking particular notice of the fact that on Saturday the 17th of February, Payne does a thorough clean of his car. Is he trying to keep up appearances or hiding evidence?
D.S. Cummings knows that he must act before it's too late. On Saturday, the 24th of February, at 2.30pm, Cummings makes his move and arrests Payne at his home. But Payne does not go quietly. You cannot see me without my solicitor, he tells the detective indignantly. But D.S. Cummings isn't going to be swayed. You are to be arrested, taken to Bromley Police Station, where I propose to charge you with the murder of Claire Josephs. Payne is brought in, but at this stage he knows he's in a position of power. He's aware that police have no murder weapon, and that any fingerprints they find of his in the Josephs' house can be explained by his previous visit with his wife. So, how are they going to get a conviction? As it turns out, after spending a lifetime being overindulged by some women and treating others like objects, it will be a woman who finally brings pain to justice. Margaret Pereira joined Scotland Yard's Forensic Science Department in 1947 as the first woman on the scientific staff. Pereira is slim, with brown intelligent eyes, short brunette hair and a slight overbite. She is later described by her colleagues as having the stamina of an ox and a constitution to match when it came to stomaching the most macabre of scenes and of having a wicked sense of humour. In the late 1950s, she was to be dubbed Miss Murder by the News of the World and Bloody Maggie by her colleagues for her work on blood typing. It was the only weapon in the armoury of a forensic scientist then, before the use of DNA in the 80s. In 1962, Pereira was hailed as the pioneer of a new technique that made it possible to match blood traces to different blood groups. Previously, forensic scientists needed a blood stain the size of a sixpence on clothes or other articles before it could be accurately grouped. Pereira's technique made it possible to group blood based on mere specs. This new method, named after her and used around the globe, is what will help her trap Roger Payne. Sitting at her dark wooden lab bench, Pereira splays the last dress Claire Josephs wore in front of her. It's a bright red woolen frock, stained black in places by dried blood. Meticulously, she extracts samples of blood and fibres. If she could match either of these to evidence found on Payne's suit and in his car, it could be enough to secure a conviction. After careful examination, Pereira identifies that Claire's dress is made of very distinctive, unusual fibres. Luckily, they also have a fluorescent character, causing them to glow in ultraviolet light. So Pereira places Payne's suit and jacket under UV light and finds over 60 bright red glowing fibres in the seams and hems, which she tests against Claire's dress. It's an exact match. But that's not all. Claire Joseph's blood is found to belong to a very rare grouping, shared by just 0.6% of the British population, while Roger Payne's grouping is shared by 4.4%. Pereira finds both groupings present on the handkerchief police took from the murder scene. 
During their initial search of Payne's car, police discovered stains they believed to be blood. Pereira tests these stains and finds that not only are they human blood, but are of the very same, extremely rare grouping that Claire belongs to. All this evidence combined is enough to charge Roger Payne for the murder of Claire Josephs. On Monday, the 19th of May, 1968, the trial of Roger Payne begins. He pleads not guilty to all charges, but stands little chance against the mountain of forensic evidence Margaret Pereira has gathered. During the trial, she presents her findings on the blood groupings and fibers from Claire's dress. She also explains that fibers indistinguishable from Payne's suit, overcoat, scarf, and even dog hairs similar to his dachshund were found at the murder scene. The saliva found on the coffee cup at the flat was also tested and found to be consistent with Payne's. It could not have been Claire's saliva or her husband's. Throughout all this, Payne remains indignant. He continues to protest his innocence and claims that evidence was tampered with by police to secure a conviction. But his protestations fall on deaf ears. Roger Payne is sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Claire Josephs. His is the very first murder conviction in British history secured on forensic evidence alone. Pereira is promoted to Principal Scientific Officer and in later years becomes the first woman to be appointed Controller of the Home Office Science Service. After refusing to admit his guilt, Payne is refused parole eight times. He spends over 50 years in prison and is one of Europe's longest-serving lifers, although he did spend a brief period on the outside under the assumed name of Thomas Fairfax, living in Lydney in the Forest of Dean after illegally absconding from an unescorted visit in 1991. After his mother passed away, he has no remaining relationships beyond the walls of HMP Oakwood in Wolverhampton and has now said that he does not want to leave as he would be alone. He says of prison, I'd never be lonely here. I've turned my back on the outside world. While the use of DNA evidence has captured the public's imagination in recent years and is undeniably a powerful crime-solving tool, it is those basic fibre and blood tests used so effectively by Pereira which remain the backbone of forensic investigation to this day. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, the brutal murder of a nomadic, troubled young woman on Hankley Common is uncovered when her badly decomposed body is found in a shallow grave by Royal Marines on manoeuvres. Despite the condition of her body, Scotland Yard's DCI Greeno and his team managed to identify her as Joan Pearl Wolfe, known locally as the Wigwam Girl, thanks to the tent-like structure she lives in on the common. The search for a killer leads them to her lover, a French-Canadian soldier at the nearby barracks. Can they find enough evidence to convict him? Hold up. 
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Thank you.